Uh, we're going to have our reading now. Um, so if you could find it in your booklet, it's John chapter 20, uh, verses 10 to 29. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. I asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir... If you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told him, and she told them that he'd said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We're going to sing again in a minute, but um, we're going to pray, and we're going to use a prayer from uh, an old Puritan book called The Valley of Vision. Now, it's got some oldy, worldy words in there, but I hope you'll bear with me, uh, because I think it's a really rich prayer about the resurrection. So let's pray together using this prayer. O God of my exodus, great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt died upon the shore. Far greater the joy when the Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forever. He, my gracious surety, apprehended for payment of my debt, comes forth from the prison house of the grave, free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. 
show me the proof that his vicarious offering is accepted, that the claims of justice are satisfied, that the devil's scepter is shivered, that his wrongful throne is leveled. Give me the assurance that in Christ I died. In him I rose, in his life I live, in his ascension I will be glorified. Adorable Redeemer, thou who was lifted up on a cross, art ascended to highest heaven. Once no shame more deep than yours, no agony more better, bitter. What more could be done than thou hast done? Thou de- thy death is my life, thy resurrection my peace, thy ascension my hope, and thy prayers my comfort. Amen. Well, do take your seats. Thank you. You're in fine voice, and I've got a wonky stand thingy here, but we'll live with that. Good to see you, especially if you're visiting family and friends. If you're visitors, great to see you. Welcome. Um, but please turn to your service sheet or to your Bible to John chapter 20. I'd love you to have page 4 in your service sheet or your Bible opened at John 20. That would be a great help to us. Apparently, there's also really good music at Word Alive. Um, <laughs> so if you don't experience that in your church, you can always go to Word Alive next year and get some... Great music. We have a good pianist, but the guitarist is a bit broken. Um, <laughs> it's all about forgiveness. We live in a culture right now where green screens are really, really powerful. Just ask Sean Spicer. He's the spokesman for the White House. He wore a green tie a few weeks ago. And within a couple of hours, these wags on the internet, not ones that went to Word Alive and came back saying they had good preaching, but the, the wags on the internet, they imposed all sorts of stuff on his tie. Because when you have a green screen, you can do anything. You ask any filmmaker. If you are part of the DC Comic Fan Club, when they make all these bucket load of films, you can have a green screen, and then your person can be flying. And then someone can be jumping from a rooftop to rooftop. Whether they actually do it or not, you can't tell. But if it's over three feet, it's a challenge. They use a green screen. You can make a monster. And they can, with huge footsteps, be going from... A skyscraper to skyscraper, crushing it. You can do anything you like with the power of the green screen. It's about perception, you see. Uh, Another angle on this, if you're in the political sphere, it's not about content, it's about perception again. So it does matter what color tie you wear, it's screen tested. It does matter what you say, and so you screen test and have an audience for all the uh, speeches that you'll give on the conference trail. Someone said uh, quite helpfully that in the modern world, Uh, personality has replaced character. I think there's some truth in that. But whether it's a political sphere, Brexit, Chexit, if you're going to leave Chesington, um, Ebsit, if you're going to leave Exit, or Epsom, thank you, Dan, he laughs. I pay him for one laugh, five pounds. Um, Whatever it is, perception is important. And I want you to have that in your mind, whether you're thinking about trying to get people to come to the box office so you make money as a filmmaker, whether you're trying to garner someone's opinion when you are politically campaigning, um, because perception is so important. When you come to the resurrection, I'm not going to look at the resurrection of the historical reality. I'm not going to provide an apologetic for that, because I think it's, it's true, and you can go elsewhere for that. But today, I want to look at the resurrection in a different uh, hue, a different light. Why did Jesus come back to life? Is it because God is a divine musician or a magician, rather, to get my M's in the right way? And he wants to show off. And so this is how I can show all my tricks, not with a green screen, but I can bring my son from death to life. Is that really what the resurrection is about? 
I don't think it is because God has to impress nobody. God hasn't got to garner anyone's opinion. He's not after anyone's approval. Completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need to say, look what I can do. Look at the strength of my arm. He's not trying to show off. There's a far deeper meaning and a deeper need for the resurrection than that. But that being the case, why did the resurrection happen? And what was achieved at the resurrection? And for us, if you're a Christian here this morning, what do we receive from the resurrection? That's what I want us to think about. There was a conversation in our home this week about the resurrection, about Easter, to say, why don't we scrap giving presents at Christmas? And why don't we give presents at Easter? I think there's something in that. Uh, Amazon or Tesco, wherever you do your shopping, Aldi, that's where we do all our shopping, they would love it if you bought presents for both times of year, yeah? But uh, I think it would be great if we gave presents at Easter because that's really what John 20 shows us. Here's the resurrected King Jesus, and his arms are full of newness. They're full of gifts. I think they're at least five. I want us to look at what are the gifts of the resurrection? Why did it happen? What did it achieve? And what does the resurrected Lord Jesus give as gifts to the church? I think this passage from the Bible is full of gifts. Jesus comes to Mary. The resurrected Jesus comes to Mary. He comes to Thomas. You can see that from this passage. He comes to the disciples and his arms are full of gifts. And here they are. Here's the first one. The gift of faith. The gift of faith. This is the foundational gift that all the other gifts kind of flow from. Jesus uh, said, I am the resurrection and the life. That's the present tense. Not I was, I am. And because he's not dead like Buddha, because he's not a, a dead religious leader like Muhammad, Jesus can give gifts to the church and to you, even if you're not yet a Christian here this morning. And the first one is faith. Look at verse 27, please. The first gift is the gift of faith from the arms of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Verse 27 of John 20 says, Stop doubting, Thomas, and believe. Stop doubting and believe. I want you to believe. I want you to have the gift of faith, Thomas. And it's not just Thomas, but he's saying to everybody in this chapter and everybody in the world, I want you to believe in me. First person he meets is Mary. Let's think a little bit for a minute about Mary. Faith is not something that you can conjure up from the, the web that comes out of your wrist if you're a Spider-Man fan. Uh, faith is not something you can conjure up from the strength within, like you a ready kind of glow when you garner faith, when you rub your hands together and get warm. Faith is a gift that is received, says the Lord Jesus. But here's Mary. It's not something that she naturally can come up with. Look at verse 2 and into verse 11 as well. Mary's world has been shattered. Her uh, paradigm has come to an end. Tears are down her face. And that's just Mary. But let's think about Mary. Here is Mary. She has seen Jesus perform innumerable miracles. John, who wrote this gospel, he says, if I was to write down every miracle Jesus did, well, surely there wouldn't be enough books in the whole world. Jesus kind of put the NHS in modern-day Palestine out of business. He healed bucket loads of sickness. He, he drove out evil, uh, evil spirits. He conquered uh, all that was wrong in the world. And Mary saw so much of that. Mary saw Jesus raise people from the dead. Mary heard the claims of King Jesus that he would rise from the grave, that there would be an empty tomb. 
Jesus said this so frequently that the Roman uh, centurions and the guards got wind of this. The authorities understood what Jesus was claiming he would do, and that's why there were guards in the tomb. Jesus made these promises and revealed his power to Mary. She saw so much evidence, and yet still she struggled to believe. She had very small faith, if faith at all, at this point. She knew that everything Jesus said had been fulfilled. When she went to the tomb, verse 1 and verse 2 of John 20, Mary should have said, yes, Christ is risen, just as he said. I'm going to go and tell the disciples, yes. But she didn't. Her world had come to an end. I shouldn't have doubted. He's risen. But verse 2 and verse 11 show where Mary is truly at. Everything is darkness in my world. My Lord has left me. My life is falling apart. Woe to me. She looks in the tomb and her world has come to an end. All those promises Jesus made, all the miraculous uh, demonstrations of his power, they're a far distant memory. Because it shows us that if Mary can't come up with faith, then neither can you or I. It's a gift from the resurrected Lord that has to be received. Okay, if that's right, then how do you receive it? Two quick things, A and B, two quick things. How do you receive faith in Jesus? Here are two things. You have to look at his wounds. You have to look at the wounds of the Lord Jesus. Did you notice in this passage, Jesus shows his wounds to people quite a lot. Look at verse 20. He meets with the disciples. First thing he does, look at my wounds. Verse 27, he shows Thomas his wounds. Because get this, faith, faith is not about you looking at your faith when you become a Christian. Faith is looking at Jesus as the object of your faith. Someone put it like this. Don't try this at home. Faith is like a windscreen. You know there's a difference if you'll kind of go short-sighted and look at the end of your nose when you're driving. If you look at those filaments that sometimes car makers put in uh, windscreens so they can defrost it in the morning. If you try doing that for too long, you will crash. Don't try this this afternoon. Don't focus on the windscreen. But the windscreen is there for you to look through at something. And that's the purpose of faith. Faith from the resurrected Lord is not something that you hold on to. It's not something you conjure up from within your own spirit or experience. Faith is a gift from the resurrected Lord for you to look at him as the object of your faith. If you end up looking through, not at, the windscreen, hopefully everything will be fine. Watch out for other road users and so on. Don't go cross-eyed. But look through the windscreen and all will be well, we hope, as we drive our cars and motorbikes and whatnot. But faith, faith is a gift from the resurrected Lord for you to look at him and his sufficiency and his worth and his trustworthiness and his beauty to understand his promises, to understand the future. And faith, as you look at the wounds of the resurrected Lord, is to say, Father, by faith I look at your son, King Jesus, and I see his wounds and that is enough for me. That is enough for me to get through my life. Because of your wounds I am justified, as Johnny said so eloquently. Because of your wounds, I'm accepted. Because of your love, I'm an adopted child of the king. This is not something I've earned. This is something I receive as a gift of faith. You look through the windscreen at an object, and you look through faith at the beauty of King Jesus. That's what it means to become a Christian, to have the gift of faith. But secondarily, you don't just look at his wounds. That's A. B, you need to drop your conditions. You need to drop the ifs. You need to drop the ifs. 
faith is becoming a Christian, looking at the wounds of Jesus and dropping your ifs and your buts. What does that mean? Look at Thomas. He's a great example of someone with lots of ifs. What were Thomas's conditions? He says, verse 27, and following, if I can put my hand in his side, if I can put my finger in the nail prints, then I'll believe. If, if, and another if. If, if, if. If Jesus comes up to my standards, then I'll become a Christian. But when Jesus turns up, notice what he says. Stop doubting and believe. I know you've got your conditions. I know you want to put your, your hand in my wounds. But stop doubting. Get rid of your conditions, Thomas, and come to me. You can put your finger here, verse 27. You can see my hands. You can reach out your hand and put it in my side. But it doesn't say that Thomas did that. That's what's very interesting. Verse 28 says, When Thomas saw Jesus and he saw his wounds that he received from the cross on Good Friday, how did he respond? My Lord and my God. He dropped his conditions on the spot. You need to look at the wounds of Jesus and you need to drop your conditions. All of us can say these ifs. Uh, if you put something in my life that's missing, Jesus, then I'll follow you. If you take away an issue in my life, then I'll follow you. I'll follow you if you explain how this part of your life happened. Then I'll follow you. Then I'll know that you're real. If you give me this, if you give me that, if you take away this, if you take away that, then I'll follow you. But you become a Christian by saying, Jesus, you've given yourself utterly to me. I'm not going to bargain with you. I'm going to give myself utterly to you. You drop your conditions. You look at his wounds and you drop your conditions. That's what it means to become a Christian. You don't say, I'll come to you when I clean up my life. I'll come to you when you prove yourself. I'll come to you. You drop your conditions and you say sorry to Jesus. And you say, you've given yourself utterly to me. I will give myself utterly to you. That's gift number one. We've got four more. We go quicker. It's okay. Number two, here's the second gift from the arms of the resurrected king. It's the gift of intimacy. First is the gift of faith. The second one is the gift of intimacy. Look at verse 27 with dear Mary again. Do not cling to me. Excuse me, verse 17. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Do not cling to me. Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Sometimes when your children, when they get bigger, when they hug you, it hurts. When they're adults, it really hurts. Sometimes you have to say, stop. But sometimes, one of our children at least, hugs us so tight to show <coughs> off their strength and show off their love for us that you end up losing your breath. I wonder if that's what Mary was doing to her beloved King Jesus at this point. And it's as if Jesus is saying, Mary, you're hurting me. You're holding on too tight. One of the great gifts of the resurrected King is intimacy. It's closeness. It's a relationship with the God of the universe. And in this sentence, it's not as if Jesus is driving her away. But I think Jesus is saying, Mary, intimacy with me now is not just about geography. It's not just about physical closeness. There is going to be a new way that you can relate to me that is so close. It's a new level. It's a new degree of intimacy. You don't have to hold on to me physically to be close to me. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 17 and following. One of the most important gifts of the resurrected Lord is the intimacy with the God of the universe, with the God who knows you, with the God who made you. Christian friend, let me ask you this question. When you pray, do you make contact with your Lord? 
What do I mean? Do you sense his presence when you pray? Do you remember that time, perhaps when you first became a Christian, perhaps that was a long time ago, when you felt a real closeness with the King, a real closeness with the Lord. And now that feels far away, it's a distant memory. When you pray, do you think about God's character and his wisdom? Do you think about his promises and his goodness and his mercy? And there is a closeness that as you pray, you feel your burdens lifted because you trust your king afresh. Do you feel and know anything of that? If you've not experienced that for a long time, why not ask yourself a few questions? Is there a habitual sin in your life that's getting in the way? Is there just a sheer habitual practice of laziness? So there was a closeness in the past when you were a keen Christian, but now your life is so busy that actually you spend more time on the phone or looking at that gadget that can be a great help or a hindrance than you do opening the Bible. Where is the intimacy that you once had? Do you know anything of this? Mary's clinging to Jesus. And I think Jesus is saying, you don't have to be physically close to me or geographically close to me to know a perfect intimacy with me that one day we'll enjoy forever in heaven. Friends, the, one of the gifts of the resurrected Lord is faith. The second one, I think, is an intimacy with the Lord who loves you and who knows you personally. The third one, the third gift, is purpose. The third gift of the resurrected Lord is a new purpose. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As soon as you meet the King, as soon as you meet Jesus, you get busy, you get active. If you have become a Christian in a genuine, real, lasting way, there will be a measurable change in your priorities, what you're about. You may still struggle with shyness, you may still struggle with timidity, but you want to, in God's power and strength, have a confidence so you can share this great news of Easter and of Christmas with your neighbours and with your friends. There's a, there's a go-ness about your life. There's not a stiltedness. You do not stay the same when you become a Christian. Whenever Jesus meets people face to face, he's always sending them out. Come in like a spiritual tornado, and then you get sent out when you see who Jesus is. Verse 21 says, As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Jesus says that quickly to people. He doesn't say, and isn't this an interesting thing? You've become a Christian, go to college, go and study, go and read these amount of books, then go, then you'll be ready. He says, come to me and go. There's appropriateness for reading, there's appropriateness for study, of course there is. But Jesus says, when you've seen me, when you've met me, when you've encountered me, go, because there is work to be done. My work, the work of the Father, says Jesus, and your work, the work as Christians, is to share the good news of the kingdom. And that means everybody's involved, there are no passengers. Friends, why do you come to church? Why do you come to church today? Is it because you are a bit of a consumer and actually you, you like learning about religious things? It's a, it's a comforting thing to be in church. There are as great musicians, there's an okay speaker. And you like coming to church because there are nice people and coffee's good. That'd be wonderful. Friends, is there any go about your life? If you've met with Jesus, there's a reprogramming of your internal hard drive with a new set of priorities, a new set of aims. God puts you in a new direction because you're a kingdom person now and you want to make him known. There's a, there's a new purpose to your life. Here's the fourth gift. It's the gift of the resurrected Lord. It's the gift of power. It's the gift of power. Look at verse 22. 
Jesus, the risen Lord, immediately comes and he says to the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. It's resurrection power. Resurrection power. I was thinking about um, how to say this, and perhaps this is the clearest way I've got anyway. You know Mount Everest? Is it Nepal? It's absolutely huge. Imagine, I was thinking of Superman, but I've used DC already. Imagine somebody is buried underneath. They're alive, but they're buried underneath Mount Everest, right in the middle. We do some tunneling work. We put them in there. We put the rocks back. They've got no resources at all. This is not the A-team. They cannot get out. But then somehow, with a with a demonstration of their human strength and power, they burst through Everest, right through the peak, right through the top. You can't climb it anymore. It's ruined for everybody else. You would think, that's kind of a strong man. It's a strong woman who did that. That's power. They've got strength. Is that really what Jesus did? He just demonstrated his power. No, it's far greater than that. It's quite something to burst through from the core to the peak of Everest. But the mountain that Jesus was buried into or under was far greater still. It's the mountain of death that no one has ever escaped from, that no one can ever escape from. He's buried into death. No one can blast their way out of that. But Jesus did. By a demonstration of the power of his Father, his power that spoke the world into being, that sustains it with the word of authority and command. That same power raised Jesus from the grave. And if you read Ephesians chapter 2, and if you look at verse 22 of John 20, the resurrected Lord says, that same power I now give to you, disciples. That same power is now yours. That's the Spirit of God. It's not a glow. It's not a boost. It's not an energy drink. It's the power of King Jesus. It's the power of the Lord Almighty dwelling in every single Christian. That means change. It has to mean change. Change that you cannot conjure up yourself. The power of God in the lives of people. So how can you tell if God's at work in your life? Well, where were you last year? Where were you last month? Let's take last year. Can you see growth in your life? Can you see new fruit forming organically? Not kind of gradually, but organically from the inside out. Is there a change in your heart? Is there a change in your behavior? Are you, I asked myself this this week, less grumpy than last year? Are you less irritable than last week? Is there growth in your Christ-like character? Can anyone see or sense a difference? Is your tongue now under control in a more profound way than it was last year? One of the biggest changes in my life when I became a Christian at 15 years old was anger. It was out of whack. It was out of control. It's still there occasionally. kind of comes up beneath my shirt. But under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, I've managed to get my anger under control. But are you growing in Christ-like character? That's the power of God seen in the human heart. The power and the gift of the resurrected Lord. It's intimacy. It's uh, a gift of faith. There's a new purpose to your life. And there's power as well. Finally, it's the gift of peace. The gift of peace. You notice every time the risen Christ appeared to anybody, the first thing he said, look at verse 19 when he's meeting Mary. Look at verse 21 when he meets the disciples. Look at verse 26 when he meets the disciples and Thomas. The first thing Jesus says each time is what? 
peace. I want you to know peace. What's so peaceful about having met the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus? What's so peaceful about that? Is it kind of uh, harps in the background, a bit of pan pipes? Is it still waters being taken by the hand down the Hogsmill River or somewhere like that? Is that really what peace is? I hope not. The minute you've met the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, here's peace for you. You know that death is no longer an enemy. That's peace. You know you've beaten death. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Do you know what a midlife crisis is? I don't think I'm having one. Maybe I am. Someone smirked just then. A midlife crisis, when you get to a certain age, I won't say what that is. It kind of changes in degree to my age, but... And then you think, ah, there's more of my life behind me than ahead of me. I need to do some stuff. It's about time I went skydiving. It's about time I uh, traded in the Volvo for a motorbike. There's an idea. Um, And you start to think things like that. You start to think it's about time I went to a certain place. I want to swim with dolphins again. It's about time I did that. Hogsmill was great, but dolphins are better. You might just think those sort of things. My life is beginning to get towards its end, but I want to do stuff because I'm afraid of the end. That's really what drives a midlife crisis. There's all these great things that I can accomplish. Maybe I should move house. Maybe we should change careers. That's a midlife crisis. Maybe it's a good thing, but it depends on the motivation. If you're afraid of the future, probably it's a a midlife crisis. There's lots of great things I can still do. And if that's you, it's kind of me. Jesus says, peace. Peace. Peace be with you. Because of the resurrection has changed absolutely everything. Listen to this. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you, death, well, actually, it's the best thing that could happen to you if you're a Christian. The worst thing that could happen to you, death, is the best thing that can happen to you. Let's rub that in. What, what do I mean? Well, what do you think is the worst thing that can happen to you today? You get the letter. You get the email. You get the phone call. You've got cancer. And you've got six months. You're, you're terminally ill. Is that really the worst thing that can happen to you? Uh, I'm sorry, you need to come in to see your boss. You've lost your job. Is that the worst thing that could happen to you? You receive the breakup phone call or email or letter. Someone's breaking up with you or you're lonely. Or a friend dies. The worst thing that could happen to you. Christian friend, if you think death is the worst thing that can happen to you, you're mistaken. Because Jesus comes and says, peace be with you. Death is just a dark door, someone said, into the light. The resurrection tells us that Jesus is raised by the power of his Father to his right hand. He intercedes for us in heaven. So it's not just peace because death is defeated and the power of death is no more. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of his Father, all of history is under the loving authority and rule of King Jesus, the resurrected Lord and Messiah. That means he's managing all things for his Father's glory and good and for our good and growth as well. And that makes a huge difference. So even bad things like cancer, like losing your job, like losing a spouse, like losing a loved one, like losing your resources financially, all of those things that would be very difficult to manage, actually they become manageable because even bad things can come into your life to work out good because our father's a good father 
I was reading the Bible this week, and I was in 2 Kings chapter 6. It's a very interesting story where Elisha is it's toward the end of Elisha's ministry. He's a prophet in the Old Testament, and God reveals his power to him in a fresh way. He's surrounded by the Assyrian army in a place called Dothan. Sounds like it should be in Star Wars. But Dothan, it's a Palestinian city. It's surrounded by the Assyrian army, and his servant comes to him, and his knees are knocking, and his teeth are chattering because he's so afraid because the enemies of God are surrounding the city of Dothan. And Elisha says, it's okay, servant, it's fine. God, please will you reveal your glory. Reveal all those who are surrounding and protecting us. And God reveals his glory and his majesty in the most remarkable way. And you see fiery chariots and the angels of the Lord and the army of the Lord. And Elisha and his servant are saved amazingly. Just through a prayer, through a prayer phone call from Elisha to the heavenly throne room. That's service for you. But then I got thinking and did a little word study. Hundreds of years earlier, Dothan, same place, appears in the story of Joseph in the first book of the Bible. In the story of Joseph, there are 12 brothers. I had a dream and a different colored coat and all that stuff. And there are 11 older brothers who are jealous of Joseph. And the jealousy grows and they throw him into a pit and they throw him into slavery. And Joseph cries out in Dothan, Father, please don't let them do this to me. And heaven is silent. And his life takes a different path. And it looks like an absolute tragedy, but it's a victory because God's servant, Joseph, goes from the prison to the palace. And at the end of his life, that famous sentence in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that says, God, you intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. Now, how does that work out? It's the same place. And in one time, God is immediately responsive to the prayers of his people. And the other time, it's as if he's silent for decades. How does that work? Friends, you and I need to remember with the gift of the resurrected Lord being the gift of peace, God is just as present to Joseph in his hiddenness as he is to Elisha with the chariots of fire. He's in control at all times and in all ways. And a Christian is someone who is at peace because they know the gift of the resurrected Lord, that he is good, that he is in control, that his purposes never fail an end. And whatever God sends into our life, we know it's for our good because God is a good God. I know that this is redemptive. I can't see it clearly, but I know that God is a good God, and so I trust him. It's the pathway and the gift of faith. So you're not like Mary who's running around saying the world has ended. My hopes have gone. My dreams have been shattered. It's all over. Instead, you can say, God is working. I can't see it. This is hard. Christians are not stoics. But I trust God. I know he's working. Because Jesus is our risen Lord, you have peace. Those are the gifts of the resurrected Lord. But one last thing before we uh, close up. Back to verse 17. Verse 17 is an interesting phrase that caught my attention this week. Jesus says to Mary, Mary, go tell my brothers I'm waiting for them. Go and tell my brothers I'm waiting for them. This is the first time in the whole of the Gospel of John that Jesus calls the disciples brothers. That's interesting. Why would Jesus do that? Because we know, if we turn back a few chapters, that these brothers were deserters. These brothers that said, we will stand by you no matter what, they did a runner. They, they left Jesus high and dry. And Jesus says, Mary, the first thing I want you to do is to go and tell those deserters to come and see me because they're my brothers. He doesn't say, I want those deserters to come and I'm going to give them a little ticking off. 
but go and call the deserters because I want to call them brothers. Are you a brother of the risen Lord? Are you an adopted son like Johnny said? The only way you become an adopted son, you see, ironically, is you say, yes, I am a deserter. I am needy. I am broken. I am sinful. I am rebellious. I've gone my own way. I've tried to live life for my own glory. I deserve rejection, but King Jesus, please, I want to be one of your brothers. The way you become a brother is by saying that you're a deserter, by recognizing where you're at in your own heart. Because until you admit that you're a deserter and that you've run away, you've lived life for your own purposes and not for God's, you can't become a brother. And whatever each one of us needs this morning is in the hands of the resurrected King Jesus. So if some of you are not yet a Christian, you can become a Christian even this morning. And you could say, if that's you, you need to say, well, I need faith. I need faith itself. You need to drop your conditions. You need to look at the wounds of Jesus and see that he's enough for you. If you're discouraged, remember that Jesus is a God of peace. And peace is there for you. Some of you need to be changed. Some a little bit, some a lot. Remember, Jesus Christ says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's there too. It's the gifts of the resurrected Lord. Perhaps we could give gifts to Easter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're not a stingy, stringent God, but you're a God of holiness and majesty and awe, of generosity, of compassion, of forgiveness and of love. And so as we celebrate with joy, as we sing with full hearts and full voices, help us to remember your character as the resurrected Lord who gives gifts to equip the church for works of service. And in that new purpose, help us to be busy about your business for your glory's sake. Amen.